This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Equity Minds! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in roughly 20 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and unlike always, I am unfortunately not joined by my equity buddy, Ren, due to some last-minute mayhem that's popped up at work for him, but the show must go on. So the good news is that I am joined by another equity mate of ours, and that is Julia Lee. Hi, Bryce. Thanks for joining us, Julia. Pleasure. So, for those that haven't listened to our previous episode with Julia, firstly, you must go and do that. It was a successful episode, great feedback, but Julia is an Australian equities analyst at Bell Direct, stock picker extraordinaire, and we're so excited to, to have her back on the show. So, again, thanks for, your, thanks for your time today, Julia. Really looking forward to kicking into this. Can't wait. So the last time we spoke, Julia, it was, as I said, a, a very successful episode. We got some really positive feedback from our listeners and we, we wanted to get you back on to, I guess, get a bit more of an insight into the way that you think about stocks and go, go about picking stocks. So this is the first episode of what we're going to call the Equity Mates Mastermind Sessions. So to explain how that's going to work for our listeners, each month or, or thereabouts, Alec, Julia and myself are going to come together and each pitch a stock that we think is either interesting, um, be it due to business model or opportunity for growth, perhaps it's management, or that we think presents a good investment opportunity. Just want to note though that in no way is this a, a buy, hold or sell recommendation and as always doing your own research on any stocks we discuss is very critical. Uh, and this is just general information and discussion only. The idea of these sessions is to expose our audience, you guys, to the different ways in which we all think about companies and our investment opportunities and go about uh, researching them. And obviously, we're here to learn as much as we can from Julia, who has a ton of experience. And we're hoping to get Julia's thoughts on our approaches to choosing stocks as well. So, sadly, Ren uh, misses this inaugural episode, but I'm sure next month he will make up for it. But I'm keen to get started. So, did you? how do you want to do this, Julia? Uh, I'm happy to go first, if you like. All right, let's do it. 
Sounds good. Uh, well, my stock pick today is Linus. It's a rare earths company. And I guess in choosing this company, often when I look at companies, I try and find a catalyst for a move in the share price. My view is that if everything remains the same about the company, its growth profile, what it's expected to see in terms of earnings growth, the share price really shouldn't move. So what moves the share price is new information. And I guess uh, for Linus, it's geopolitics, which is driving the price higher. China produces most of the rare earths in the world. In fact, over 80%. And rare earths are important because they're used in um, most technological products. So from mobile phones, electric vehicles, even in the use of uh, processing jet fuel. So the Western world needs rare earths. They, they are a highly strategic asset. And given the U.S.-China trade wars, we've seen Linus's share price being well supported. Not only that, aside from that, they have a strong growth roadmap. So that includes a plan to around about double the output of its main products. So it's got a growth plan as well. And then add into the mix our West Farmers sniffing around, being interested in taking over this company. The indicative bid from West Farmers, which is non-binding, which means it might not go through, is at $2.25. And certainly at that price, it will not go through, given that the share price is much higher than that. So I guess the factors uh, that are driving Linus are the US-China trade wars, the possibility that China might restrict rare earths to the rest of the globe. So it is a highly strategic asset. And in fact, uh, Bryce, we've seen this before back in uh, 2016, uh, China restricted rare earths. And we saw the price of rare earths moving to more than 160 US a kilo. Now, at the moment, um, we've seen the price move from about $32 a kilo in US dollar terms last month to about $42 at the moment. So we have seen a strong rise. But I think as this trade war continues on, um, more and more technology companies are going to be thinking about the security of their supply. Right. So what you're saying in terms of the trade war is that if China restricts their rare earth minerals to the states, then the states are going to be needing to find an alternative by a seller of rare earths. And this is where Linus comes into it. I think there are a few scenarios here. One, uh, the worst case uh, scenario for technology companies is if China restricts the export of rare earths from China to the rest of the globe. And that will mean that they will be scrambling for supply. Linus is the only non-China rare earth producer of any scale. So that's pretty amazing in itself. But secondly, it means that um, at the moment, if I was a technology company, gaining access to this resource through China might not seem like the best long-term plan. I might want to diversify um, being able to secure rare earths from outside of China as well. So regardless of whether or not China restricts rare earth, I think that the Security of supply is very much in focus, which is good for Linus and good for securing longer-term contracts at these higher prices. And then thirdly, because the security of this asset outside of China is once again in focus, rare earths are actually not rare. You can find them anywhere throughout the globe. (laughs) False advertising. Um, But But they do um, require some specialist knowledge um, in order to mostly process these rare earths because they do um, contain highly toxic waste materials. So there's another, I think, area of growth for Linus in that if it wants to help other companies in processing or mining rare earth, then its expertise um, could open up another avenue of growth. 
production of rare earths from the US is mountain pass. There's only a very small amount of rare earth which is mined. And the concentrate's actually shipped to China for downstream processing where oh, a lot right. of the toxic waste occurs. And in May, China lifted the tariff on that deal from 10% to 25%. Um, so US technology companies are probably already feeling a little bit of pain. But given that it's such a strategic asset, this is a key time for Linus. Uh, the share price has risen quite strongly. That um, It's been the best performer in the ASX 200 over the last quarter. Mm. I think we're going to see a little bit of consolidation here. The next key dates to be aware of um, in terms of the US-China trade is uh, the 29th of June when the US and China are supposed to meet up at the G20. And of course, if we don't see constructive conversations going on there, we could see once again a bump up for Linus. So on, on that point, you mentioned right at the start that you look for catalysts of change. If you know, the the China-US trade war threats, I guess, come to a head or, uh, sorry, I, I suppose uh, they come to an agreement on the 29th and for some reason uh, start going the other way and relaxing. Would this then make you reconsider your position on Linus? It depends on the share price action. Definitely when I'm looking at stocks that I love and I can see catalysts for and uh, the thesis changes, then my risk management is always in place. So I have a, a percentage stop loss on the positions I hold. So if they fall more than a certain percentage from the highs that they've reached, then I'm automatically out of the trade. And that's to stop my emotion from getting the better of me um, when I'm looking at the share market. Because for me, I love stocks. It's very easy for me to fall in love with stories but at the end of the day i i hate losing money so mm. risk management is key but i think look i don't think it's just the u.s china trade talks which are underpinning this story there's also west farmers circling around with a possible increase in terms of its takeover bid and also given that rare earths already in the spotlight i think you know if i was um linus i'd find it much easier to sell my product to the rest of the globe, even post-US China, because it is about security of supply. And if you only have one source of supply for rare earths, that is China, this event really demonstrates um, you know, the risk to your business if you're a technology mm. business from just getting that supply from China. So you know, if I was looking at this situation and I was a technology company, I'd be looking to diversify my supply. And really, the only option out of China to any scale is Linus at the moment. Speaking of supply, and, and I want to touch on West Farms as well, but does Linus only have, I guess, major operations in Australia or do they have mines for this sort of stuff in other countries as well? This is mined in Australia and then it's sent over to Malaysia um, for processing and that's one of the key risks um, with Linus. It's been in uh, the media before in terms of Malaysia and I guess to Malaysians it's quite unpopular that Linus has its processing plant in Malaysia given the concerns sometimes about the waste material that comes from processing rare earths. So they mine the rare earths over in Western Australia and then they ship it out to Malaysia for processing. Now there are 
agreement with the Malaysian government is up for renewal on the 2nd of September. Mm. And that's a major risk for mm. a company like Linus. However, recently we did see comments from the Malaysian Prime Minister and he acknowledged the importance of the strategic asset that Linus mines and the security needed and basically indicated to the market that he would be giving the go-ahead for Linus to continue processing that material out of Malaysia. Would you say that uh, Linus has a pretty strong moat when it comes to its its business model at the moment in Australia? I think it's a temporary moat. Um, with all commodities, the time to look at jumping out of commodities is when you see a massive supply response. Mm. So it's in this great spot at the moment where the rest of the world just simply hasn't caught up to what, what's happening. But as I mentioned, rare earths aren't rare. So it's only a matter of time <laughs> before projects um, start not only popping up, but we start to see more um, rare earths being processed. So with commodity type companies, I like to look at it through the supply-demand um, lens. And I guess um, an example of this really is lithium and lithium carbonate mm, prices. Mm. Uh, we saw a strong run-up and they were some of the strong, strongest performers on our market a number of years ago. But then you saw SQM, which was one of the largest um, producers of lithium carbonate in the world. And then since then, it's been very difficult to make money from lithium type of companies because the underlying price has been under pressure. So, general rule of thumb for commodities is that it's not that hard to mine commodities. It does take a bit of time and some expertise, uh, but generally when you start to see that big supply response, it's time to start thinking about perhaps getting out of those type of companies. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. LYC. <laughs> now I want to... How about you, Bryce? Do no, you I've, a... got, I've got one more question. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, why, do you, why is it that you don't... I mean, you, you just said that rare earth its minerals aren't that rare. Why is it that you don't think some of the bigger mineral exploration and mining companies in Australia, BHP, Rio, aren't as heavily involved in this? 
Uh, look, I think rare earths, it's seen this boom over the last few years because of technology really dominating our lives. And if you think about it, you know, this has been like the last decade where we've seen this again in popularity. And to tell you the truth, you know, prices had been relatively depressed before the US-China trade war came along. And that's because, you know, China produces rare earths quite cheaply and it's willing to take on um, some of the dirty work of processing as well. So I guess in terms of incentives, um, there was little incentive to do so. But I think the current scenario has highlighted the strategic nature of rare earths, especially given the rising geopolitical risks throughout the globe and specifically between the US and China. So look, I think the situation is unique at the moment and we probably didn't have that catalyst for our miners like BHP, Rio Tinto, maybe even Fortescue to diversify into these areas. Hmm, interesting. Another question before we move on to mine, if you don't mind. So you mentioned that the West Farmers deal is um, hanging around, and and they made a and they made a bid, and I th- was it either knocked back or um, they pulled out. I'm I'm not quite sure, but what what does it mean for an investor? Say if you're invested in Linus, what does it actually mean? Is it a a good thing? Is it something to be wary of when someone like West Farmers comes in and makes a, an offer at uh, for one of the companies you may be invested in? Well, I think it's a very positive signal. Obviously, at $2.25, it's not going to be successful given that Linus's share price closed at $2.75 today. Mm. But it does demonstrate, I guess, the attractiveness of the business. If you think about West Farmers, it's got a very strong track record in buying undervalued companies and then adding uh, value to those companies. Uh, it di- it's done that with a number of different investments. Um, so, obviously, the potential it sees in Linus is quite positive. I I think West Farmers also thinks it can bring its own expertise to the table in helping uh, Linus and in terms of the processing part of the equation. And it's been quite an unusual um, interest in Linus that West Farmers has in in that it's caused Linus a few problems with the Malaysian government as well because it does look like West Farmers has been relatively activist and engaged in talks with the Malaysian governments, which is which has traditionally been a bit of a no-no given that, you know, West Farmers doesn't own uh, Linus mm. as yet. Mm. So when you were looking at this, do and, and you're looking at a mining company as well, I guess this applies a bit more broadly to mining, but do you look at uh, less about sort of the, the catalyst for change and the broader picture and take any note towards their financial position at all? The financial position is important, but I guess uh, given uh, that Linus has laid out its growth plans, it's also very easy to find out what its plans are. So it Mm. did lay out that growth uh, roadmap. So that plan to almost uh, roughly double output. Now, usually when you hear something like that, First of all, I think, well, that's going to cost money. Um, (laughs) And I guess in terms of that growth roadmap, um, part of it was a self-funded $500 million capital spending plan. So that gives you a bit of security that the business is able to fund that growth themselves rather than coming to the market, which is, I think, a positive sign for investors that they don't have to dig into their pockets all the time to fund this type of growth. So. Yeah, I like the Linus story. As with Mm. all commodities, I keep a close eye on the supply-demand 
dynamics. At the moment, it's the supply side or the potential um, disruption in supply from China, which is driving a lot of the price. Um, but look, its growth plans are strong. And look, we know that over the next 10 years that our use of technology is going to continue to boom, mm-hmm. especially in the area of electric vehicles. So while at the moment there's plenty of supply um, of rare earths, if you include China's supply, um, over the next 10 years, that relationship is likely to maybe reverse, especially as electric vehicle momentum uh, starts to take hold. Yeah, completely agree. I think when I first saw that uh, Linus was your pick, it's a company that I hadn't really uh, paid much attention to. I knew it was performing well from a price point of view, but I always tend to keep a bit of a distance from mining companies just because I think um, the volatility and um, the cyclical nature of it of, uh, of the companies is something that I don't stay close enough to and you can um, really come unstuck if you don't really know what you're looking for in, in some instances. But I mean, it's, yeah, I think um, for all the reasons that you've mentioned, it's certainly a company that I'm going to keep an eye on um, just if anything to get a bit more of an understanding about uh, the industry and these uh, rare earth minerals. So awesome. Well, now for Price, is it your turn? <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll finish the episode then. <laughs> so I've gone, uh, as I said, I keep it, keep my distance from from mining. Um, I work in retail, so looked in consumer discretionary um, and came across uh, a company that I'm sure a lot of our listeners will have heard of or potentially have some sort of product in their kitchen, and that is uh, Breville Group Limited. Um, So for the listeners who are unsure of what uh, Breville Group is, they're a global electrical business, um, and they center their products around the Breville brand. Um, So the coffee machines is, is their primary I guess, product. Um, So they're publicly listed in Australia. They also have a a group of global subsidiaries who are um, also leading providers of small electrical appliances around the world. So I guess their strategy is about design and development of kitchen appliances, as I said, and um, they deliver these kitchen products to over 50 countries around the globe. One of their biggest brands in the United Kingdom is Sage. Um, They've been there since 2013. Canbrook is Australia and New Zealand, also Breville. And then um, they also have an electrical appliance uh, brand, Ronson, which I'm sure some people have heard of as well. Their major markets are North America, Australia and New Zealand and Europe. Uh, And one of the reasons I really like them is their growth strategy over the next coming years years, uh, FY19 and FY20, is to really start branching out into um, Europe into a number of uh, different companies. So I think from a market point of view, they have some excellent growth potential. So that's sort of a bit of background and context into into Breville. For me, as I said, the, the positives with this company are that they really continue to extend their growth opportunities. So they've uh, said that they're going to be moving into Germany and Austria. Um, and also they've opened in Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, um, and will be launching in Spain in FY20 or the first half of 2020. They also have a very strong balance sheet. 
It's estimated that by the end of FY19, so very soon, they'll have about $50 million on their balance sheet. And I think this is a great opportunity for them from a mergers and acquisitions point of view. So just to give you some context in terms of what that market growth potential is. So from a coffee point of view, and we all know we Australians love their coffee, but so do the Europeans. <laughs> the German market is the biggest coffee consuming market in Europe, and it's six times bigger than Australia and three and a half times larger than the UK market. So it's a huge opportunity for Breville to extend their product mix and um, and their, I guess, global products business uh, into these markets to, to try and uh, continue the growth rates that they've been seeing over the last few years. Initial thoughts, Julia? Uh-huh, I like it. I, I, one of the things I like about Breville is that, as you mentioned, it's an internationally diverse company and it's also quite a cyclical one. But when you see, um, I guess, cyclical companies um they're prone to, you know, consumers not spending as much money. Mm, but when mm. that happens, you have the balancing effect of the weaker Aussie dollar, which is a positive in terms of Breville's earnings. Um, so that currency risk helps to balance out that um, that that impact from lower growth expectations or weakness in discretionary spending. So that's a really nice thing about Breville. You've got this growth company that's expected to see double-digit growth, so around about 11%, I think, this Mm. financial year. And then it has that balancing impact of um, the Aussie dollar, which also comes through to help on the risk side of things. I think one of the things that Breville's done outstandingly is really picked the trends that are happening in the appliance market. I, I remember a few years ago it was people spending a thousand dollars on blenders, and I thought at the time, <laughs> yeah. who on earth would spend a thousand dollars on um, blenders? And it turned out, you know, Revel Group's blender, which was actually more than a thousand dollars, turned out to be a huge hit, and it was behind a lot of the growth. And now the next trend that they've um, pinpointed really well, as you mentioned, are these coffee machines. So they have a license agreement with uh, Nestle in Nespresso, so those coffee pods. You know, who doesn't love George Clooney? Um, But as you mentioned, our appetite for coffee is just growing, especially in some of those European countries um, that they're looking to enter into. So great pick. Yeah, they've partnered with um, Heston Blumenthal in Europe to really push this coffee machine uh, or that that coffee experience, I guess. And yeah, they're they're really good at um, what's called going to market or direct to market in terms of uh, advertising and, and marketing. They have a lot of interactive displays and and really creative ways uh, to advertise their products that I think really appeal to the use case for a lot of their customers. So, yeah, I think uh, positive signs. I I just want to talk about their growth uh, and their their balance sheet a bit. So they've got a market capitalization of 2.2 billion, revenues of 440, but their EBIT or their earnings um, has really had sort of a very successful past three years. They've had a three-year growth rate of 25%, but uh, that's simultaneously increasing their marketing and research and um, development investment by about 60%. So I think uh, it's really been an efficient growth rate from Breville, which appealed to me. Julia, do you want to talk about, I've, I've done a bit of a discounted cash flow now. I'm not sure if this is something you do, but I'd just like to run it by you if you don't mind. Sure. So they have a current earnings per share of 0.51 uh, 51 cents. Um, 
that I've put in that earnings is expected to grow at a rate of 10% for the next five years um, before leveling out to a growth rate of 5% thereafter. And I said the discount rate of about 8% and it's come out with a stock price value of $22.26. Its current price is $16.96. What are your thoughts, and I'm not worried about the price here, but what are your thoughts around um, the rate of return that I've put in and also the expected growth rates? How would you approach this? Uh, well, based on, I guess, the last few years, um, that that's a pretty good growth rate. Um, consensus forecast is for growth of around about 11% at the moment. The big risk that I see to that, and I, I think that um, around the $20 mark is probably just a touch optimistic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably closer to sort of that $17 level at the moment. But having said that, you know, if the momentum continues, this is a company that has a track record of outperforming and the August reporting season is coming up and we might see the market adjust adjusting its expectations around growth. The key risk for me from this company is that it is a consumer products company. Mm-hmm. And while it's done very well in launching products that the market wants um, and um, the trends that are in the market, uh, from $1,000 blenders to $1,000 coffee <laughs> machines, um, I guess in terms of the future, will they necessarily be able to um, – bring a premium a product to market that the market wants that helps to support that growth rate. But look, for the time being, I think that lower Australian dollar is moving in its favour, that expansion in Europe is going well. And as you mentioned, those double-digit returns means that, you know, it probably does justify a slight premium to what the market is proposing because it is very hard to find growth at the moment. And that's not just an Australian company story, but it's a global story. Mm -hmm. So when you see these companies that do deliver on double-digit growth um, in terms of earnings and do it consistently, then the market does tend to um, be willing to pay a premium for that Mm, mm. Yeah, I, I just want to sort of echo those um, comments around it's, um, I, I guess, what it needs to look out for. And, and with the RBA dropping interest rates, it's an indication that the economy is not going as well as uh, they would have hoped. And in a consumer discretionary business, sometimes these $1,000 blenders and coffee machines are the first things to go <laughs> when it comes to when it comes to keeping a mortgage repayment or paying for the more uh, necessary things in life rather than the luxury things. So another thing for me is, yeah, just in, um, keeping an eye on broader economic conditions because I'm sure it will have an impact on, on their uh, future growth as well. Absolutely. Having said that, you know, the UK has been a bit of a basket case because of Brexit and they've still managed to see double re- digit returns coming through from the UK. So mm. it's an interesting one, one that I'd be keeping a close eye on because logically you'd be thinking that um, weaker economic conditions would have an yeah. impact in terms of consumer type products like this. Well, hopefully it's not because everyone's using afterpay and take going into debt buying $1,000 <laughs> blenders. <laughs> Who knows? Well, uh, Cool. So that I, I guess that's uh, my stock pick. Great to get your feedback on it, particularly around that discounted cash flow for anyone who's a bit um, unsure on what that means. A discounted cash flow is just a, one of many models that you can use to, I guess, come up with a, a potential value, stock price value for a, a company that you're looking at based on a number of inputs, um, particularly around um, 
expected growth rate and and a discount rate as well, which is a I guess a rate that you can get a return on um, elsewhere. So you can check that out just on on Google. There's heaps of stuff if you want to um, look into that. So that brings us to the end of our first Equity Mates Mastermind, Julia. That was a that was a lot of fun. I just want to get one more. Um, I guess, piece of advice or, or your thoughts on uh, the Reserve Bank. And we, I just mentioned there that they did cut rates and we did an episode on it on it recently. Um, but I'd just like to get your take because I know you're very interested in the, the broader picture and get an understanding of if it's changed your view on, on the sort of shorter term, say the next 12 months or so from an economic point of view. the share market should go up. So I decided to go back in time and crunch the numbers of, you know, the impact of higher or lower interest rates um, and whether there was any correlation or any relationship with the share market here in Australia. So I went back to 1990 and I guess I looked at the times where the Reserve Bank was in an up cycle where it was increasing interest rates. And in those periods, the average return of the market was about 19%. When interest rates were falling, the average return of the market was about 7%. So that's a pretty Mm. big difference. Mm. I then adjusted those numbers because I know that the market is forward-looking. So it prices in things before they happen. So in terms of interest rates, the market's already pricing in the expectation that we'll see three interest rate cuts in the cycle. So it's already adjusted to that type of information. Mm. So I actually crunched the numbers six months before the rate move had started. And in that case, um, the performance numbers were a lot more stark in that when interest rates were rising, the share market on average returned 35%, which is massive. Whoa. So obviously, the pricing effect of uh, rising rates and the stronger economy had already started to feed into the share market. And on the flip side, when interest rates were falling, the share market was actually a negative return, so down by 2%. So that's an interesting thing to keep in mind Mm. um, that the natural response tends to be, oh, interest rates are falling, it must be good for the share market. But actually, if you go back in time and look at the relationship, it's been the opposite. When you talk about US, interest rates though Mm -hmm. it's been a different scenario one because the u.s currency is seen as a reserve currency of the world and number two is because it's been quite an unusual time in terms of um, many markets around the world including the u.s japan and europe where we've seen non-traditional easing measures where uh, the federal reserve might have been buying bonds or in the case of the bank of japan um actually buying exchange-traded funds on the market, which is staggering to think about, or over in Europe, lending directly to businesses um, on the market to try and stimulate economic growth. So in the US at the moment um, is this mentality that lower interest rate is good for the economy. And we almost call it the Federal Reserve put, or as it used to be known, the Ben Bernanke put, because a put (laughs) is seen as an insurance on the market that the Federal Reserve is basically insurance on the market because they won't let the share market fall, that they'll come in and they'll protect it from falling. Um, This week is 
a big week in terms of expectations around interest rates, and that's because the biggest economy um, in the world, which is the US, sees its interest rate meeting on Tuesday and Wednesday. The market has already priced in an 80% chance that we are going to see a rate cut in July. So that's mm. the next meeting. Um, so this meeting is all being going to be all about watching to see the Federal Reserve do the setup so that they can cut rates next month. Um, and that's because over in May, they said they were being very patient in terms of the economy and the data. Um, now we're expecting to hear more of an easing bias and that type of language will pave the way for a potential interest rate cut over in the US. Now, this is significant for Australian investors because it is a global market. So if the Federal Reserve starts to aggressively cut interest rates, then, you know, the Reserve Bank of Australia is going to have to more aggressively cut interest rates as well so that it can attract capital uh, to the Australian market more cheaply, um, given that the US is such a big funding currency Mm. of the world's growth. But we're running out of interest rates to cut. (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) There is a point for us where interest rates just aren't an effective mechanism to stimulate growth in the economy. And look, economists predict that that's around half a percent here in Australia. Um, So we're at one and a quarter percent at the moment. Um, That will get down to perhaps half a percent. And then after that, it's, um, you know, no use cutting anymore. So in that regard, what you're going to be looking at is, um, you know, possible cash handouts to help stimulate the economy, Mm -hmm. um, tax cuts that helps to stimulate as well. So you're looking at um, things other than the interest rate mechanism to try and stimulate growth. Hopefully, you know, Reserve Bank of Australia isn't forced to do something as drastic as the Bank of Japan and start buying direct or exchange traded by market. It's an interesting time for this monetary policy. I think, you know, around the world, it feels like that a 0.25% cut in interest rates in Australia may have been uh, or may have seen material impact a number of years ago, but it just feels like to me, and I guess to Ren as well, we've had the same conversation that it, it seems like it's losing that oomph that it's, it used to have. Um, and it's a very interesting time. If, fingers crossed we don't hit a recession and they have to pull all sorts of different triggers because historically speaking, interest rates are, are the trigger that they do pull to, I guess, um, fight, fight back against uh, a recession. But with not much to um, cut any further, it's going to be an interesting time. It will mm. be an interesting time, especially given that, you know, in terms of the residential housing market, what the Reserve Bank probably doesn't want is to form a, a housing bubble because of ultra mm. low, low mm. rates either. So it is about balancing um, a number of things, but unfortunately, it's a dual mandate of inflation and um, mm. employment that really drives a Reserve Bank rather than housing stability um, in general. So, um, yeah, what shows inflation and those job numbers, but Really, I think if Australia heads into a recession, um, it will be because of external factors rather than internal ones. So watch what's hap- happening globally because it's very important for our market. Watch this space. Should be an interesting 12 months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, these types of volatility, they don't come often and I really think of it as an opportunity. Absolutely. Um, Don't waste a good pullback in terms of the market because they come so rarely, especially the big ones. Mm, No, absolutely. I think anyone who missed their opportunity, even in December last year, would would be hanging out for um, something similar to come along. So, yeah, watch this space. 
Well, Julia, that was uh, an awesome start to Equity Mates Mastermind. I, I'm sure our listeners uh, got a lot out of it. I certainly did. Um, and I, I know Ren, as I said, sends his apologies and he'll very much be looking forward to our next session. Um, it was great to get your insights and also for you to expose our community to, I guess, a stock that uh, will give them some inspiration or you've exposed them to something that they may never have uh, experienced or thought about before. Um, so a big thank you for that. If our listeners do want to follow you or your work, um, is there a best channel to do so? Uh, I'm very active on Twitter. Um, so my handle is Julia Lee AU um, and my work is at Bell Direct. Um, and Bryce, it's been such a pleasure talking to you about stocks. I've loved talking to you about Revel as well as Linus and what's moving the market. Um, and it's so rare to be able to have this conversation um, and just a sort of casual, informal conversation on what moves share prices. So hopefully this is the start of a a long (laughs) relationship where we talk stocks. We hope so too. So as always, thank you so much for your time. Um, We are very much looking forward to our next Mastermind session. So thank you, Julia. Thanks, Bryce. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful.